Hey there, we are back with Killing Lonesome Jorge here on KUMM 89.7, the United Alternative, the only station that puts cum in your ear. This hour's program is sponsored by the subway on 5th Street. And I was going to see how far you could go with that. I, I, was, I was like daring you to... Uh, yeah, I kid. Um, we, this is We've Been Had, a song by song walk through the songs of Uncle Tupelo. But that shit... I've actually said all that shit on the air before. Anyway, this is the last time that I get to talk about uh, song by song walk through the songs of Uncle Tupelo. I am Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. And our songs covered tonight are High Water, No Sense in Lovin', and Steal the Crumbs. But again, this is the end of the line. This is it. I'm a little disappointed, just to back up, that, that you were a radio DJ in college. And I lived in a dormitory where the radio station was in the dorm. That's fantastic. Yeah, I never, I never. And the only reason I went there is because my one of my friends didn't had a show and didn't know what music to play, so I went <laughs> down there and picked out some records for him to play. Nice. I I'm an atheist, but I still thank God that there aren't recordings of me like on the air my freshman year, like trying to do wacky. Trying to do wacky Omaha morning zoo shit, like Todd and Tyler. Yeah, well, I was actually I was I was ripping off their predecessors, uh, Diver Dan and Otis Twelve. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh, yeah, this is it. It's weird. It is really weird to me that that we're here, but we're here. Yeah, it's, I mean, it was a short, it was kind of, uh, it was a short career, only yeah. four albums. Yeah, I, I guess that, I mean, that would, we always knew that would make it manageable, but it's weird to have managed it. So then, a while ago, I kind of alluded to the fact, or we kind of alluded to the fact that uh, we were pulling some retroactive continuity here, and that... The song-by-song walk through Uncle Tupelo was just going to be the conceit of the first season of the show. Um, So there will be a second season of the show, and um, now it can be told. Uh, During that, we'll be going through four albums of St. Vincent's. Yeah. That's going to be very different. Very different, but very, also very exciting. I'm pretty stoked. Like, I, I think it's cool. Like, you know, so this, like, with a lot of this, we've had... 25 years to like marinate thoughts and that you know like there'll be some element to going in somewhat cold with the next season and that's gonna be pretty cool yeah and i think it'll be it'll be different i mean i think people are probably already tired of hearing our stories from from you know the 20 plus years of uncle tupelo fandom so this will allow us to mine some new territory. I'm. I really like Jay Farrar and Jeff Tweedy both, but I'm also excited not to think about them as much, at least. And just as a teaser spoiler, there's a Mannheim steamroller tied. <laughs> That's very true, and it is something. All right. Well, should we get into this? Should we? Should we wade into the high water? Into the high water. If I can make a dumb joke here, this song is not the high water mark of a great album. It is not, but it is one of the songs that I feel like helped me appreciate country music. I can see that. Um, you know, there's so like Sunbolt Trace is kind of on the margins. Yeah. Like there are a couple countryish songs, but this is like a straightforward country song. And I think, yeah. you know, like when I was experiencing it the first time, it was kind of right after that grunge era where like you know country was like Garth Brooks and it was it, you know it's like it, it was as stupid as it sounds the cultured music was the alternative music yeah you know like that hoity smashing pumpkins <laughs> uh, but I feel like this album helped me really to to get into more mainstream country acts like Graham Parsons and Merle Haggard. Yeah. And eventually like Buck Owens and and those type of 
those type of backs. Yeah, there's there's that first step you've got to take of being like, you know, it, uh, it it's okay if I listen to this. It's all right. And it's weird. Like it, for me, like there's this weird thing, and I, I guess this is and probably an extremely white thing, but in a weird way, the Beastie Boys were kind of like another version of that. Where it's like, oh crap, I can. It's okay. I can listen to this. Hey, what's some other rap? Oh, Run DMC. Whoa. But yeah, this is like super. I mean. My note here, I just got, I've got like chill country, you know, highlighted, and uh, they brought in some guy named Lloyd Maines to play pedal steel, and that I mean to me that's like the selling point for this song is that pedal steel part is just great out in front. That's yeah, a good it's a good counterbalance to Jay Farrar's voice. Yeah, who sings a good country ballad? It turns out he the, he could have always fallen back on that. So one thing that I noticed, and I'm curious if, if you had this same read, is do you feel like like flooding and high water is a Midwestern experience more than it's a, and maybe it's just because I've always lived near rivers, but it seems like it seems like the you know some of the the memories and the way people tell time is based on like historic floods. You're totally right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's, like, uniquely Midwestern, but it's definitely a thing in the Midwest. I mean, like, I can think of, you know, not for, not far from here over at uh, Fort Snelling State Park. They've got all these poles showing, like, this is where the flood of 1962 went. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, one of my college roommates lived, uh, he went to high school in Iowa, but uh, lived across the river in South Dakota. Yeah. And in 93, yeah. it flooded so badly that he had to drive something like 40 miles to get to school. Yeah, those 93 floods were, I, I distinctly remember how nuts that was. And I was thinking about that, like, as you were talking about this, I was actually thinking about that flood, because I know that that also kicked the shit out of St. Louis. So... You know, in some way, like, this song, like, the central metaphor of this song might have been inspired by that one big-ass flood in 93. One of the side benefits of that flood is that uh, Budweiser, uh, I assume as some kind of civic civic duty, released, like, the, the equivalent of bottled water, but in cans. So it was, like, <laughs> Budweiser water. Nice. So that was, like, a, that was like a hot item, and... In Ames, if you had a if you had a can of Budweiser water, <laughs> uh, why didn't they just call it Budwater? I think I think a crisis like that, uh, the branding is not always on point. It's a missed opportunity. I agree. Fair enough. Well, get so getting back to uh, to Ferrar in country ballad mode. To me, this is another one. Where Ferrar sounds like he's mourning the band in one of its own songs. I mean, just, you know, so many lines like, we quote each other only when we're wrong. It's a really good observational line, but it also sounds like, you know, like a report from the front lines of his war with Tweedy. Yeah, and I guess I I know that that they all knew there was tension, but I wonder if anyone else in the band realized it was as dire as as it is when you step back and look at it from that light. I don't think they did. I mean, in that Rolling Stone oral history thing, Stirat says that he had no idea, and, you know, the sessions were really upbeat and cordial, which blows my mind, given, like, the lyrical content of all these songs. But I don't know. I mean, Jay is blatant here. Yes, so I I kind of put the... the uh, There's two two kind of couplets that I highlighted the can't seem to find common ground I can see the sand and it's running out <laughs> yeah bracing for the final word to come you can't break even you can't even quit the game yeah and I also like the pulls and beckons with strong direction high water forever bringing us down like, like that's a pretty powerful piece of imagery if ah. you think about it in terms of your longtime friend that you're in a band with and yeah. you're getting ready to you're kind of go your separate ways. That's a pretty... that Even for those guys who, who maybe hated each other at the end, that had to be a weird headspace to oh, be in. Totally. Yeah, I mean, that had to be bizarre. And it's weird. I guess this is a thing that happens a lot in country music, just in general, when it works well. That this song has these like heavy negative lyrics, 
And then it's got just that beautiful pedal steel part just kind of shimmering around it. You know, and that's, I don't know, that duality of like sad and beautiful is, I think that's one of the big sells of country music. Good country music, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's also an element of country music that's that's kind of, this is my lifestyle, and F you if you don't like it. Yes, that is the worst country. No, actually, that's not even the worst. The worst country music. So I saw Willie Nelson three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and I had always known that he did a song with Toby Keith called something like Beer for My Horses. And like I'd, I'd never listened to it because I was like, I like that title, but Toby Keith's involved. It can't be any good. But Willie Nelson does it, and it's great. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess all this time, I guess he had done a good song with Toby Keith. Today, I went back and listened to the original Toby Keith featuring Willie Nelson version, and it's the worst fucking thing I have ever heard. And I mean, like, if you want to talk about bad country music that has no sadness and no beauty, it's that song. It's hard for me to separate, like, Toby Keith the man from, like, Toby Keith the music. So, like, yeah. I'm not sure I'm capable of being objective uh, on him just because I think he's a clown. Well, if you ever want to see a music video where he pretends to be some kind of CSI profiler trying to get Willie Nelson to come and help him solve a murder, beer for my horses. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb and say that murder was unsolved. I, you know, I don't know because I had to quit watching before the song was over because I was so pissed off. Yeah. The opposite of this song. Yeah. No, it's a, I think Lloyd Maines was in, uh, played on AM as well. I was, I was wondering about that because the name sounded really familiar, but I couldn't place where from. I think that's right. That makes sense that, uh, you know, I mean, he does a great job here, so bring him back. One thing about that, though, I normally really like Brian Paulson's production, but one specific thing with this song, I don't like the way the acoustic guitars sound. It's they're just kind of disappointingly like ticking along in the back, and like you know, he can make them sound better. I wonder if he's trying to if he's trying to highlight that duality, though. If he's if that's why they went with that type of mix, probably just like put the important stuff forward. I mean, I think the, I just think as a, I mean, I don't know if Jay Farrar's production has changed over time that much, but Tweedy got a lot better at blending in different elements. Yeah. And whether it's Tweedy or it's whoever does the production on their albums, but I think, I think you start to, you start to see those as kind of lessons learned. Yeah, totally. This is, this is one way to make an album. And this, I mean, this is a great fucking album. So it's not no no uh, no shade thrown, but it's uh, I don't know. I I, I think that kind of leads us into the into the next song. Did you have anything more on High Water? Um, just just this last thing that like uh, that, that ties into exactly what you're saying. That like I feel like it's built around this. You know, they do a lot of like through their career. There are a lot of Uncle Tupelo songs that build around these like high-low sound dualities, and this one kind of has that with Jay's voice holding down the low, the pedal steel holding up the high. And, uh, you know, it just comes out to this thing where if the argument for Uncle Tupelo was always that they will rock you and then make you cry into your beer, like, this one is the needle is pegged all the way over towards cry into your beer, and that's, that's what that song is doing. But you sound like you got something to say about Well, I mean, no I, I guess this is this was my take is that to me no sense in loving sounds like a song that should be on AM. And the reason I say that is it's like it's classic AM like it's good not great and it just to me it feels a little cookie cutter Jeff Tweedy it's funny that you say that because I've heard Jeff Tweedy or I've read Jeff Tweedy several times call this song the first Wilco song and like I agree it just it sounds not only does it sound like it should be on AM when I was listening to it today I realized like 
Jay's invisible on this song. Like it, it really could be on AM. Like he he's probably just like strumming a guitar in the background, but there's no It's just not the good pieces of AM though. Yeah. That's that's what I guess I don't I, I mean it's like you know what Jeff Tweedy is capable of, right? Yeah. This is a man that's capable of being there, that's you know, capable of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Know, Mermaid Avenue Volume One. Like, yeah. This man has greatness in him, and this is just to me not an expression of said greatness. I think you're right. I think, I mean, so my my read on AM has always been that Dweedy came to that album with like his usual number of good songs ready, you know, but there there wasn't like Jay providing the other number of good songs, and so like you've got this album that has like these lumps of greatness and then just kind of, well, we need some something to fill in some space. And like this song, you know, No Sense in Lovin', if it were on AM, it would be, it'd be like the best of the uh, the filler songs probably. Yeah, right? It's It just is, that's what it feels like to me. I mean, one thing I should say is that he does rhyme intense and inheritance. Yeah. Which, which is like, like, that's like Johnny Rotten level <laughs> rhyming antichrist and anarchist, which like definitely don't rhyme. But when you when you when you sing it with the Johnny Rotten accent, like somehow he gets those two things to rhyme. It's which, all in the delivery. Yeah, I mean, I guess for my money, Bob Dylan is probably the the like kind of rhymes best player in the game. Yeah, but, the reigning champion. But it it is interesting to me how you can you can use your voice to like. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say you're mispronouncing words, but you're kind of like you're you're adding a, an an element to it so that it rhymes. I'm trying to remember what the official slant rhyme maybe is the the English major term for that. I don't. Re- I was thinking it might be enjambment, but I think that's something to do with cramming an extra like syllable in. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I hope it's enjambment. I like that. I, I I'll look it up. I uh, I think it's. So Can we cool. make it in jam? <laughs> That's... You just got jammed. <laughs> I've thought about running for city council just so that I can. Yes. So, just so I can say that to people. That's a Parks and Parks and Rec reference. If if uh, people are not familiar. And you should be. You should watch Parks. And Rec. Acquaint yourself. Yes. Educate yourself. Um, getting back to the Wilco-ness of this, I feel like. Uh, uh, through his Wilco albums, Ken Coomer develops this like really distinctive swing that isn't present as much on Anodyne, but like shows up later. This song has it. Like this sounds like one of his Wilco drum parts. I think this song has like the archetypal 1990s John Stirrett bass part. Um, it's just really like it's it's like the end of um, this is terrible. It's like the end of Revenge of the Sith when they like cut through their little like last few scenes of all the pieces falling into place and like the production design production design suddenly looks like Star Wars, you know, the 70s Star Wars. That's what this is. Um It's gonna take me a while to unpack that. That's you're not you're not ready for my Star Wars prequel. I, I was not prepared for I didn't know we were gonna be talking about Star Wars. So. Oh, always. Um, it's interesting. Lloyd Maines is all over this one too. It's like they're like, "Well, we got this guy. Let's." But so okay, I don't think this is an intentional thing. But towards the back, Anodyne has this like changing of the guard feel, and part of that is that after I guess it would be after we've been had, you know, Farrar just like puts the electric guitar away and like doesn't. You know, there's just, there's no more thrash. And, like, the sound drifts away from that when that had been one of the defining things. And, I, you know, like, I, I don't think it's this conscious thing, but it really does kind of feel like, well, okay, the the Uncle Tupelo engine is slowing down now. Um, you know, because, honestly, like, two of these last three songs are just, like, really kind of Lloyd Maine's showcases, and he's not even part of the band. Yeah, I wonder. So that's kind of sad because, like, Lloyd Maines is obviously a very talented musician. Yeah. And you know, I didn't look up his like all music biography, but 
I'm guessing that his musical career hasn't been especially lucrative for him. Yeah. Uh, so it's just kind of a it's it's sad to me when someone is someone is really talented, but has to kind of exist on the margins. Well, you never know. Maybe he's had a maybe he's had a good time as a yeah, session pedal steel player. Uh, tough to say. I uh, so lyrically, this one's interesting again. It uh, you know, Tweedy's nominally talking to a romantic partner here, but. Once again, it's hard not to read this as about the split with Farrar, but from his side, you know, saying it's hard to work with a person who hates themselves. And he's got lines like, I've tried to understand your abuse, but you've got no excuse. And then later that rhyme you like with, I can't stand it when you get so intense. I mean, maybe he's talking about someone else, but it sure sounds like a psychological examination of a, the difficulty of working with Jay Farrar. Yeah, I think I, I think the there's no sense in loving anyone who hates themselves has, has almost got to be a shot across the bow. It really feels like it, and it's interesting to me how directly emotional this song is. Like, e- even if it's not about, even if it's not directly intentionally about Jay Farrar, it has this naked emotional quality that Jay never, you know, none of his songs have that. And it it feels like so out of step with his philosophy that, you know, it makes you see that uh, Tweedy was going somewhere. He wasn't interested in going, clearly. You know, and like, like suppose they hadn't split up and that chunks of AM and chunks of Trace would have been the next Uncle Tupelo album. I can't imagine Tweedy bringing Casino Queen in and Jay Farrar going along with that. Yeah, I mean, it, and you would have had, so you would have watered down Trace with with whatever pieces of AM. Yeah. Well, I mean, it might have been, you know, the good parts of AM are yeah. really good. But I mean, it's like four or five songs. Yeah, you but... wouldn't have gotten being there then. Right. Next. Like, yeah. you kind of needed, you needed AM as that step to... Kind of like, okay, this is what I do. Yeah. And then, you know, like, I, I feel like being there, Summer Teeth, and then Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, right? Those are three in order, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's that's about as good as a, of a three, and Mermaid Avenue in there somewhere, too. Yeah. I mean, that's about a, as good a, that's like Rolling Stones peak level back to back to back. That's a hell of a run. I agree. I, uh, yeah, and you know, it's 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 worth it. They they were clearly headed in such different directions that you know, even if these songs weren't basically just under the surface telling us that, like you just if you just look at what's going on, like you can see, like the end was the end's right there on the wall. I mean, even I think just the second half of this album, like just the just the difference in what they're going for. Yeah, right. You know, like. Jay wants to do these really thoughtful, well-written-out ballads that really have this, like, emotional tinge to them. Oh. And you know, I think I think Jeff Tweedy is just still trying to find his voice a little bit. Well, yeah, and that's an interesting thing, too, this, this evolution of his voice that happens. We're, like, at this stage and into AM and into being there and, like, you know, into Summer Teeth-ish, you know, I think a lot of his songs are this kind of... And I've talked about this before on the show, that, like, he just does these direct, like, I have some feelings, let me tell you about my feelings. And, um, you know, some as he was writing Summer Teeth, he seemed to stop doing that. And I guess that was him finding... Finally finding the mature voice that he wanted. Uh, you know, and he gets a lot more cryptic. And I don't... It's it, It's a weird thing. Like, just the... The gap between this song and, you know, just any song on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, like, in terms of clarity of what's being said, it's just night and day. And it's not that one is bad and one is good, it's just very different things to be coming out of one man. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's what, as fans, we all appreciated, was that you didn't know what you were going to get next, right? Like, so when Being There came out, I think everyone assumed it was going to be in the vein of AM. And there's, you know, there's like a a piano on it. It's just a, it's a different 
album. Well, just it opens with like kind of disconnected noise that comes together into something, and and so I think it it just is. I mean, I I don't want to beat the proverbial dead horse, but oh, J J Ferrar knows what he likes, and I feel like he's always known what he likes. Yeah. And that has not changed. Like, yeah. This is the kind of music he likes to record. Yep. There might be slight differences in a few production details around the edge, but you know what you're going to get. And... It's, I mean, it's often really well, well played, well produced stuff. Yeah. It just is, it can, it can feel a little repetitive. Um, and I know that's kind of hypocritic, hypocritic, hypocritic. hypocritical of me because I'm a Bob Mould fan. And one of the criticisms that he gets is that, that all of his records sound exactly the same. So I don't know. Well, that's, I, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, like really that's, I don't know how you solve that problem or if that's even a problem to be solved. Um, yeah, but nobody says that about ACDC, right? Like, uh, well, because nobody expects anything more out of them. Yeah. You know, that's that, it. it's just, it's just a given. Um, I'm trying to think, I don't know, you know, like I love Bowie, but Bowie's terror of doing the same thing. Like if you look at his catalog coldly, like that dude laid a lot of eggs in pursuit of finding cool different things. And, and, you know, I'm glad that he did. I'm glad that we got all the cool different Bowie approaches, but there's some real shit there. And like, you know, that's the Jay Farrar approach doesn't get you that. Like you, you know, nobody's complaining about Jay Farrar's drum and bass albums. Yeah. But I mean, no great artists ever been. You know what I like about him or her consistency. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's tough. Yeah. No. And I mean, it's, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm you know, shit talking Jay Farrar because he, a lot of the, music that he's made has been really important to me and continues to be really important to me. I just, you know, they're just, they're two different people who could not get along. And I think at the end, everyone is better off. So I think way back in the first episode, I think I brought up this thing I had read where, um, Jay Bennett had talked about how he felt that like he got kicked aside once Jeff Tweedy had learned everything from him that he could. And and I think in that episode, I said, like, well, maybe the same thing, you know, like, if you look at the arc of it, you could interpret it the same way with Jay Farrar, that, like, they split up once Tweedy had learned, you know, everything he could learn from, from Farrar. Um, and I guess now that we've, you know, now that we've gone almost to the end and we're at the last Jeff Helmed song, I don't know, like, do you think there's anything to that? Do you think do you think there is this sense that like Tweedy had learned what he can learn? I mean, maybe. Um, I mean, I I guess I would argue if if you know, you're in a band with Jay Farrar, like there's always something to shoot for. Like, I mean, the yeah. guy's an amazing guitar player and has one of the most dynamic voices out there. Yeah. So, but you know, I think sometimes things just don't work anymore. Yeah. And that's that can be okay. I, that is a thing I've really come to appreciate too, as we've come through these songs, just, you know, we've bounced against this a couple of times that like, we look for these clues to things within the music. And sometimes you can find them and sometimes they're legit. But a lot of the time, what's really going on is there are two human beings who have to be able to stand each other in a room. And, you know, that might not make it onto the record, but that, is the dominant experience in their heads. And, and yeah, I mean, everyone's had coworkers that they, that they couldn't stand and like that can make your life difficult. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, at some level you just gotta let people be people and not try to judge who's right and who's wrong and just hope that everybody finds a place where they're happy. Yeah. And you know, your best case scenario is that everybody goes off and starts a new band and, Releases at least one classic album. Right, yeah. You know, like, yeah. I mean, multiple if you count one of the Autumn Defense albums. <laughs> I mean, like, I guess if you think about it, like... I hope John Sturratt's listening. He's like, motherfucker. <laughs> I swear to God, I'm not, like, out to pick a fight with him. <laughs> but it always feels like it. Um, 
No, but I mean, I don't know. Like, it's a bummer. And maybe this is something that should go into the next song even. But, you know, it, it's a bummer that Uncle Tupelo couldn't hold it together. But it really is a best case scenario that they split into two great bands. You know, like, you talk about Husker Du. Bob Mould went on and did great stuff afterwards. Grant Hart made some records. And I know some people like them, but, I mean, they... It, it's a lower tier. I'm sure I've told this story before, but it's one of the saddest moments of my life was seeing Grant Hart open for Jay Farrar and just his little tiny, like, crate amp. Yeah. I, the, man the man deserved better than that. One but. man with an electric guitar is a tough thing to pull off, and Grant Hart did not pull it off. And mm. and the, the terrible thing there is that Bob Mould is notoriously one of the only people who can pull it off. Well, it's kind of hard when you're the drummer and, and <laughs> people are used to this like ripping guitar. Yeah. And you're, you know, like, yeah. I don't know. I felt, I felt very bad for him. Yeah. Or, I mean, you know, like you look at another peer band would be the replacements. Like they fall apart and, you know, again, like Westerberg has done some good stuff after the replacements fell apart. But, I, you know, I don't know that he ever got back to that level. Tommy Simpson was in Guns N' Roses for like a decade. So he got a great paycheck <laughs> that I'm happy that he got. And he's, you know, there's a couple of his solo songs that are pretty good. But, you know, like... Yeah, like the, the Bash and Pop stuff is pretty good. It is. Uh, it's not... You know, it's not as world class. No, it's not as good as the Westerberg stuff. So, like, I, I it's I, not stereo mono. Like, that's a that's a it's an amazing fucking, album. Yeah, but yeah. So, I guess my point is nobody else broke up as well as Uncle Tupelo. Is Tommy Stinson replaced by that guy Buckethead? Buckethead um, replaced Slash. Slash. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't... he get displaced by Duff McKeegan then? So Tommy replaced Duff, and then I think Duff came back and reclaimed his place. I don't know what the state of Guns N' Roses is now. I I think they're one of those bands that's available for like <laughs> dot com millionaires to play yeah. their birthday party. I think you're right. I okay. This is way far afield, but a bunch of friends of mine. Or maybe we talked about this offline. I'm not sure. A bunch of friends of mine went to the Salesforce National Convention and we're like Instagramming pictures of the Rolling Stones playing like a private concert for the Salesforce National Convention. And I mean, like I, you look at like Keith Richards in 1968 and you just want to be like, man, your story is going <laughs> to, your story is going to go to some strange places in 50 years. Yeah. I mean, We've gone from hiring the Hell's Angels as security to Salesforce. Right. Um, so, again, another thing Uncle Tupelo was spared. I guess it's conceivable that'll be Wilco, at, or maybe currently is Wilco. God, I um, hope they played Sympathy for the Devil. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they did. It reminds me of that old Saturday Night Live bit with uh, George Harrison and uh, Lorne Michaels, where he's <laughs> like, well, I uh, I offered uh, $10,000 for all of the Beatles, so it would be less than that for just you. It's like, <laughs> it's like oh, that, that seems a little chintzy. <laughs> Fantastic. No one ever appreciated how funny George Harrison can be. Man, I, I, I'm i ride or die for George Harrison. He's, He's my favorite Beatle. Number one by a long shot. <sighs> well, if we're at the point of ranking the Beatles... <laughs> Should we put no sense in love? Yeah, probably. I think, we've, right. I think we've uh, jumped the shark. We will be back. Okay, we're back uh, here at the the mournful end, and the song you know, "Steal the Crumbs" starts out suitably mournful. I think the, the second line already sounds like a, you know, it sounds like a goodbye. He's saying, never saw it coming. What a surprise. It's been a wonder. I mean, yeah, it's kind of retrospective. Yeah. I guess he can't say it's that much of a surprise if he's the one who walked out. But 
maybe he was surprised to feel that way. Maybe I'm projecting and he's talking about something else. I don't know. Yeah, so, and I tried really hard to find this, but there's, uh, based on the hot publication, the Riverfront Times, there was a, uh, they were talking about a cover that this uh, band called Dolly Varden did of Steal the Crumbs. Okay. And the lead singer, uh, whose name is apparently Steve Dawson, hopefully related to Richard Dawson, but I doubt it, uh, was telling the story about how he first saw Uncle Tupelo in a tiny club with no one in attendance. And this is his quote. I said to Jay at the end of their set that I thought he and his brother sang great together, Dawson recalls. He looked at me crossly and said, he's not my brother. Oh, shit. (laughs) Okay, that sounds like a sick burn, but the truth is he was talking... he caught one of the shows with Wade and Dade. Wade and Dade. <laughs> what you're actually hearing is the, the betrayal of Wade and Dade. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, yeah, you know, mournful. I, the, the refrain of the song is just this repeated, no more will I see you. You put that at the end of the album and you're, you're, you know what you're doing. That is conscious. Yeah, I mean, it's a... It's a pretty grim song and accurate too. No more will I see you. Yeah. It's like it's. I feel like that's. I mean, I don't. I know they've had like intermittent contact, but like it's pretty it, close. It sounds like they're. I guess it, it, it. And I and I know that this is like their their thing, right? And they're allowed to hang out with whoever they want. Yeah. It is a little bit sad to me when when longtime friends kind of break break up and yeah i mean that that's just kind of a i mean i i feel like we've all we all have friends people we were friends with in the past that have kind of faded away yeah but to have like a like an, a break event is, is hard it's hard well i mean yeah if you can zero it down to one event that's hard if you have a one of the great albums documenting that like what a weird thing you know we can listen to this album and be like, God, this is great. You know, and we can be conscious of the, uh, what was going on or not, depending on, you know, if we choose to, but like if Tweety's in a nostalgic mood, like it's gotta be weird to put AM or put anodyne on and just relive like, Oh yeah, that, that felt like shit. Yeah. I guess uh, I'd never, it's, it's like making a great film or something while you were going through like a some kind of personal tragedy so that like yeah. everyone else sees it as this work of greatness but you can't get past the fact that it's reminds you of you know a, an awful point in your yeah. life a weird example of that um so the uh you know the the Star Trek movie uh Star Trek 4 where they they go back and save the whales yeah like, with the same one where uh, Kirk climbs El Capitan, right? No, that's that's the fifth that's one. That's the fifth one. That, that Shatner wrote and directed so that he could film himself climbing El Capitan. The, the first free solo of El Capitan. <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, so, so four is, you know, this like silly, fun, lighthearted Star Trek movie. It's the one that everyone loves where they, you know, they come back to the present day and just have goofy adventures. And like it did, you know, it... it made a shitload of money and it's just kind of like held up as like the fun Star Trek movie. Uh, but Leonard Nimoy directed it and was going through a divorce as he directed it and apparently would like every day his assistant knew that when he said cut at the end of the day, um, he was supposed to just have like booze ready to go like drink himself senseless because he was so upset. You know, and so it's, it, I, Here's an example of like fun, lighthearted movie that a lot of people love that like was created in misery. I mean, I actually think Wrath of Khan is the fun, lighthearted movie. That's uh, it's my favorite yeah, for sure. It's, but, it's by far the best one. But I, 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 I think everyone had fun making that one. I don't think anybody was drinking themselves senseless. I don't know. Um, I mean, I feel like Ricardo Montalban could be like that method actor uh, who's like, who like actually went insane filming. He, he was just high on his own adrenaline the whole time. He's high on the adrenaline of being Ricardo Montalban. He's genetically engineered. In the 1990s. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, 
I think in the chronology of the Star Trek universe, I think Khan was supposed to have been launched into space around when Anodyne was recorded. Full circle. So as a part Australian, does it bother you that they, they sort of took a piece of your culture and called it the USS Botany Bay? I, I look at that as a tribute. That's, a, it's an, that, that, that's finally giving Australians and Australian-Americans the respect we deserve. <laughs> We've been silenced all too long. That and Crocodile Dundee 1 and 2. They needed to to balance out. <laughs> yeah. This is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for you to go to bat for a Crocodile Dundee movie. Like, you, you've seen the extent, you've seen the farthest extent to which I'll do that. Just there. That was the high water mark. Do you think Paul Hogan or what was that? Linda Kozlowski or whatever yeah. her name is. Do you think either of those people would go to bat for? <laughs> if I were Paul Hogan, I would just point at the house that I bought with the money from that. And, this is and, true. Say, the thing explains itself. It's like a scoreboard argument. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, going back to Steal the Crumbs. So one thing that jumped out at me that never has before, but listening to it today, it's weird that we're, you know, the last album was produced very well by a member of R.E.M. Steal the Crumbs sounds, you know, and th this doesn't go for anything else on Anodyne, but instrumentally steal the crumbs sounds remarkably like an uh, automatic for the people era rem song just in the way it's produced the way everything sounds even down to having a mandolin in front like michael stipe could sing this and it would just fit seamlessly onto automatic for the people and actually i'd love to hear michael stipe sing this he yeah, also would be really good he kind of quietly also had like a great country voice that he never brought out i mean i wonder if that part of that though is just if you know all R.E.M. is one of the original alternative rock bands. Yeah. So it's like you you almost don't get into this type of music if you're not a fan of R.E.M., right? So I wonder if it's like a subconscious thing that sometimes it just sounds like that. Yeah, like that just gets encoded in your brain. It's like, well, this is the correct way to sound. I think there's, I think there's a lot to that. Um, it's weird that I was thinking about that too. Like given how important... You know, I don't know what level of fandom Tweety or Farrar existed, or you know, if they had any. It's just, it's interesting, given how important Peter Buck was to the evolution of this band. It's weird that if you look at the extended careers of Tweety and Farrar, like, there's not really, you know, like, Tweety will still occasionally fly the flag for the replacements. I don't know that I've ever heard him talk about R.E.M. or cover R.E.M. or... I, like it's not like I'm not scandalized or anything. I just it, it's interesting. He's not much for covers though. Uh, Tweety? Yeah, I mean yeah, Wilco's always covering. I mean live. Is yeah. That what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean they cover the cover stuff. I'm trying to think if I've ever heard them do an REM song. I I don't think so. So I, I wonder if it's and this is kind of a byproduct of people who are into music, but sometimes the Sometimes the like stuff that's too make it's too mainstream. Yeah, you know, like you want to do the cover of something that no one's ever heard of, right? Like, yeah, like True Love will find you in the end or something. You know, like Daniel Johnson. Yeah, but, well, there's like a sweet spot that you go for where like a few people won't have heard it. A lot of people in the audience will have heard of it, but will think that other people haven't. And so we'll feel like they're like in the insiders right. club. For yeah. Like, oh yeah, I got deep gut. All right. Yeah. And I, I suppose like there are no REM songs that really scratch that itch. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the, so, I mean, most of the covers that I've heard are not actually covers that I saw performed live. Yeah. I, I think for the most part, cause they released that like, cover story bootleg that had a bunch of covers on it yeah i'd forgotten about that i just and you know part of this is just based on my shitty memory of a bunch of wilco and golden smog shows and seeing them i don't know it just I, I'm, I'm gonna stand on this it's weird i've seen i don't remember who was singing but i know i've seen the golden smog cover blondie and not cover rem um yeah, i mean isn't the first golden smog album all covers it is yeah Anyway, this song sounds like an R.A.M. song, is my point. And the other point, um, so Lloyd Maines is off the stage now, 
This one has like a mandolin that's way up front, and I don't know who's playing it. Discogs has no credit, so there's apparently some ghost mandolin player who manifested in the studio. Just threw it down. This has another one of my, like, this isn't a great lyric. It's not an observant lyric. It's not like words put together well. But I just love the line about haven't we both been living the high life that flows on the bottom. I like flew the flag for Miller High Life for at least a year just do, because of that line. Do you think it's that or or haven't we both been living the high life with those on the bottom? That is entirely likely. That I I'm I'm really good at mishearing lyrics. As long as the high life part is correct. <laughs> the, the high, I agree with the high life, but I think it I think it is with those on with the bottom. With those on the bottom. So it's like a it's like the the hot living the high life amongst the lower yeah, the lower tier friends in low places right. kind of Garth Brooksy, I I I'm sure you're right here, but I'm I'm heartbroken that you're like destroying my image of a, a river of beer. Well, it still can there. be a it still can be a river of beer. It's just it's a little harder to find. It's... <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I uh. You know, I just, I have a note here, and I mean, this is a thing we have just been talking about nonstop for the past 45 minutes, but how do you, how could anyone have been surprised by Jay walking away, you know, after hearing this song? Like, this is so, this is just so like, fuck it, I'm done with this, I'm gone. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the Big Rock Candy Mountain, right? Like, <laughs> it's like. This ties into your river of beer, like a, <laughs> like a lake of stew and whiskey too. Uh, but it's like, you know, it's like a, it's a song about how I'm done with this shit. Yeah. And the ironic thing to me is that my understanding is that Jay was the one who initiated the breakup. And I think that's pretty, sol you know, I think that's a pretty solid thing. Um, the ironic thing is that by taking the rest of the band with him, to form another band, you can argue that Jeff Tweedy did, in fact, steal the crumbs. Yeah. Know, or, or at least picked the crumbs off. Well, it's, I mean, it's it's a little tenuous because uh, Ferrar did recruit the original drummer from Uncle yeah. Tupelo. So he's like, his, is, his, is, his claim is more OG almost <laughs> than... Uh, than Tweedy's because he has, like, the carpetbagger Uncle Tupelo team. Yeah. That uh, that came on for the last album. Uncle Tupelo Ringers. Still, steal the crumbs. Steal the crumbs. I don't know. It's weird. It's a weird thing. I mean, we, we, we already talked about just the break. I mean, we've been talking incessantly about the breakup. Um, I love that this is the last Uncle Tupelo song. Just because it's like it's this weird, beautiful, passive aggressive thing that is also the weird, beautiful, passive-aggressive end of the band. And so, like, the form and the content match up. You know, it's like this sad event commemorated by a sad song. And... Yeah, no, it's it's a perfect ending to... And, I mean, it's not the best song on the album, but it's the perfect ender for the album. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what... I, I totally agree. Like, there are probably five better songs, but I don't know that any of them would be as good as the last song. Do you, uh, so that the Sugar song, Explode and Make Up. Yeah. Do you, have you heard the, the live version of that? I that's have. on where, where like it just, it, it ends with mold, just like howling, I hate you. Yeah. And, I mean, that, it's very visceral. That seems like that should be some band's breakup song. You know, like, I don't know how Sugar broke up and I don't, think that was the last thing they released but like to me that seems like the the opposite polarity like that seems to capture what the emotions were probably at play here but this is a more beautiful way to yeah put it to bed so i mean this is this is kind of off topic but i, I remember the i think that was on the g angel b side yeah. and um i remember not buying the G, G Angel B side because it didn't have any. It had that was a, like a live version and then it uh. had some other 
but then hearing one of our friends had it and it was like for a whatever 22 year old like it was like just this expression of emotion that was so powerful i mean i can't yeah. even listen to it now because it's like too it's too emotional right like, right I was I was riding my bike around the lakes in town the other day and like I just I had my I had a speaker going and I had my you know, I had music on full random and that came on and like I am usually just obnoxious about whatever comes up you know the people of Minneapolis are going to hear it but that one I was like this is this is too raw for people that are just hanging out in the park but yeah I don't know I like I have to believe that some part of Jay Farrar was wanting to go off and just wail on a guitar and yell, I hate you. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that would be fantastic. I mean, it'd be a cool thing to experience live, but it's yeah. it's hard to see somebody pour that much of themselves into a song. Yeah. Like, I mean, a lot of Bob Malt songs are about being effed over by people. and yeah. But that one especially, you just, you really feel feel like just his anger how about the uh i think we saw this performed live and then they released it and i think they released the version we heard recorded at first ave sunvolt doing that big star song holocaust yes um to also, me also very eerie yeah and like that's like the closest i think i've seen Ferrar get into that vein and it's weird that it's someone else's song but like it is just like raw, throbbing, sad, angry emotion. Yeah, you wouldn't think that you'd be able to make a, a song, a titled Holocaust, and a very sad song even sadder, but he does it. Jesus like, Christ, does he? That's a, I mean, that's a tough one. I mean, it, it's brilliant. Yeah, it just is, it, I don't know, maybe I'm getting old and sappy, but yeah. it's it's just, they're... They're hard for me. It's hard for me to to see people, you know, like it's hard for me to deal with that level of emotion. Well, that, that's an interesting thing about music in general that like so Jay Farrar and Jeff Tweedy are actual physical human beings who got up and ate breakfast and went to the bathroom this morning. But we listen to the music and you, especially if it's music you really care about, you develop this weird kind of emotional attachment to a version of that person that's in your head. Um, you know, and I, hopefully that version has something to do with the real person. Maybe it doesn't. It's never going to be complete. But, you know, but it's a real emotional attachment. And it's tough to perceive that person hurting. Yeah. And I think it, I, I know this is going to be the, like, I walk to school uphill both ways <laughs> argument, but... I feel like when music was consumed differently, you had more personal attachment because you had fewer, you, there was a finite number of CDs that you could own yeah. unless you were super wealthy. But you know, when you're a kid, you could only own so many CDs and you kind of, you really had a relationship with all the songs yeah. and the CDs. You would really just go deep on what you had because it was what you had. I agree. And then you get into Pearl Jam and you start buying things like Three Fish and all these. Before you know it, the Pearl Jam shelf on your CD rack has 40 albums. Yeah, right. Which really happened to a friend of ours. Hi, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Miss you. (laughs) Tom is fine, by the way. He's he's, he's a very well-adjusted young man. I think he's gotten out of Pearl Jam. Although I don't know that. Maybe not. I, I don't know that either. Yeah. Um, do we have anything else on Steel the Crones? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think I'd just, just say it's been a really fun project. Um, Absolutely. I, I've, I've enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to diving into St. Vincent. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, like I'm not as familiar with the material. So it, it'll, be, it'll be more fun to, to kind of find something new. We'll be learning as we go. I just... I hope we don't get like six songs in and be like, oh, oh, we hate her. <laughs> I think that's unlikely. I, I, I don't see that happening. 
Um, I feel like if I could have one song playing when I walk into work every day, it would be Digital Witness by St. Vincent. That would really establish a mood. That's that's what I'm going for. So Moxie. I, I have tried to learn that song several times, and it's unlearnable for me. But, uh, we'll get there. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that in weeks and weeks out. In the meantime, thank you for listening all the way through. Um, I am Keith. You can find me at Keith Pilly um, on Twitter. I would recommend you follow me now, um, well, just because I fucking rule, but also <laughs> um, to get updates on when the uh, when season two begins and what's going on. Um, yeah, that's there'll be you know as news breaks, that's one of the places it'll be. Anyway. And I'm Chad Cook. You can find me at, at Cook6252. But I would also recommend you follow Keith. Follow Chad. Chad's really funny. Uh, Chad has a better avatar than I do, too. Um, anyway, we would love to hear from you, as always. Uh, if there's anything about the show you liked or didn't like, um, I guess I usually say, tell us if you think we're a couple of dumbasses. No, I don't want to know. <laughs> you, you had your, I think we know that. You had your chance. You missed it. Um, if you dug the show, uh, and you know, if you dug the show as it was, or anticipate the show as it will be, please tell people about it, uh, or go to iTunes or Google play and leave a review. Uh, thanks again. We will be back before too long. I don't know how long, I don't know how long. Yeah, I don't know. But I would say this though, like if you've not, if you've not checked out St. Vincent, I mean, it'd be an opportunity to kind of. Come along, uh, come along for the ride. Yeah, get ahead of us even. Um, have some preconceived ideas that you can throw back at us. Um, we will be back before too long, and uh, we will see you then. Adios. Mahalo. Go.